0: Welcome to The Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery,
1: and good old-fashioned conversation. I mean, I joined the military because I thought I'd become a tough guy. I thought girls would be impressed by that. I would have an adventure. And unfortunately, only one of those things turned out to be accurate. Which one? Uh, Is the adventure.
0: Welcome to the Sidcast. My name is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Jack O'Toole, and his story is all about being an entrepreneur. When Jack O'Toole walks into the room, you know he's there. There are just some people who have that gift. I'm sure you've seen it yourself. Jack is this big guy, broad shoulders, strong, kind of like like a John Wayne look in those old time movies, a true grit kind of guy. He may be physically imposing, but he walks in with the biggest smile you've ever seen, a grin from ear to ear. If you've never met him before and saw him walk into the room, you're going to think, who is this guy? He must have a story. And that story is what we're going to share today with us on the Sidcast. The markers in his life are straightforward, but as we'll uh, hear, the pathways, the decisions, the ingenuity of his life are what brings the story alive and makes us want to hear more. Here are the facts. Jack joined the military out of high school, and he stayed for 25 years, traveling the world in the process. During that time, he led Marines in situations ranging from pursuing the most wanted terrorists in Western Iraq to leading a portion of the relief efforts after the 2010 earthquakes in Haiti. After the military, Jack went to business school, graduating from the Tuck School of Business in 2014. I don't know quite how he did it, but whenever there was something going on that was different and interesting, it seemed that Jack was part of it. As a student, he did pretty much what he did for 25 years before that. He became a leader of leaders, supporting many other vets as they left the military and re-entered civilian life. And especially if they're thinking about business school in general, and Tuck at Dartmouth in particular, Jack was there to talk about it and to support them and to encourage them. While in graduate school, Jack also connected with a chemistry professor who had this cool invention, and together they founded a tech startup called Fresh Air Sensor, which develops and commercializes sensors. They've invented the only sensors available, which can monitor, for, and detect tobacco smoke and marijuana smoke and Fresh Air is actually now trying to invent a sensor for vaping. Fresh Air gives scientific proof that someone has smoked in a monitored area and you know that's going to be valuable for a lot of people in the hotel business and other areas as well. So join me as we bring Jack into the SITCAST studio to hear his story hey jack how you doing hey Sid. thank you very much for having me i'm delighted to have you and be part of the show you've had such an interesting and continue to have an interesting career and life and i thought boy be some interesting lessons that have come out of our chat today. Long time in the military, been to the tough school and graduated in business school uh, about five years ago, and now CEO of startup with a lot of interest in entrepreneurship. But let's go back to where things kind of started. <laughs> so where'd you grow up? Sure. I grew up in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. It's
1: a small town near Portland. I love Cape Elizabeth. It's yeah. a great place. Do you still have family there? My mom lives in Falmouth now, but close.
0: Yeah. There was someone I knew, still friends that lives in Cape Elizabeth, right on Shore Road, oh, yeah, just right on right in the ocean. So Really spectacular area. So, what did your parents do?
1: My dad had a company that built houses and did developments that kind of thing, and my mom ran the neonatal intensive care unit at Maine Med. She had the lowest mortality rate in the country for most of her twenty five years. Wow! So I was excited.
0: Wow! You didn't go into medicine. I know. And what was childhood like in Cape Elizabeth?
1: Pretty. I mean, Cape Elizabeth is like growing up in the 1950s. I remember in school, once I got called to the office and the office lady said that a lady claiming to be my mother called and asked for me to call her at work. And I said, okay. And the office lady said disdainfully, your mother works. She didn't believe me or believe it. She thought it was fake. I was like, yeah, yeah, my mom works. Yeah. I want to say you work too, you're here. Right,
0: right, right. Yeah, and how far back, it's always interesting, how far back memories go. I think about, I remember when I was in kindergarten, I remember a few things that happened. Not that great, actually, and they stick in your head. I faintly think I remember something that I may have been four, but it could have been five or six. And then also your parents or older siblings, they tell you stuff and you think it actually happened. And you think you remembered it when you didn't. Well, how about you, how far back?
1: I know I have memories to three because I remember sitting in my grandmother's kitchen, her teaching me to read. She used these pink flashcards and used a blue felt tip pen. And we did these flashcards to teach me to read. That's pretty serious, pretty intense. Yeah. We did it for months till I knew yeah. how to read. Wow. Is she a teacher? No, she was a nurse too. Yeah.
0: You come from an educated family. Yeah. And education was important. I mean, my grandmother's doing the flashcard thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, my family like likes education. Yeah. And did you do any sports as a kid? Oh, yeah. I played three sports. I played golf in the fall. He kind of took the fall off. And then I play, I swam in the winter and played okay. lacrosse in the spring.
0: What point did you know you wanted to go in the military?
1: My family really wanted me to be a banker. Like one of my uncles was a very successful banker. And they thought I should be like him when I grew up. Mm-hmm. I realized I did not want to be a banker. How does one know if one wants to be a banker or doesn't want to be a banker? I don't know. I mean, I went in and visited one of my dad's friends and saw piles and piles of paper and people looking overrun by piles. And they of weren't piles looking of thrilled. Now they weren't looking thrilled, and I didn't think I wanted to do that. So I was supposed to either go to my second choice college or go to prep school and hopefully go to my first choice college. And I enlisted instead, which where I grew up was not done. I mean, nobody enlisted in the military.
0: Yeah, but the fact that you don't want to go into banking doesn't automatically mean you're going to go enlist in the military.
1: No, I just needed to break the cycle I was on. I just wasn't ready. I wanted an adventure. I mean, I joined the military because I thought I'd become a tough guy. I thought girls would be impressed by that. I would have an adventure. And unfortunately, only one of those things turned out to be accurate. Which one? Uh, Is the adventure. <laughs> <laughs> the other two turned out to be The, the girls weren't impressed with that part. <laughs> no, not at all. And I didn't really become a tough guy, so. Yeah. So how does that work? You sign up. And you go to training? Yeah, you sign up, you go to boot camp, then they send you to school for the job you're going to do in the military. I did that. And then I got to my unit and I think I asked too many questions. I think I was difficult. Oh, that's a good one. They would tell me to do stuff Mm -hmm. and I would say, well, wouldn't it be easier if we did this? I think if we organized this way. Yeah. And staff NCOs, senior enlisted people, do not like it when you say that Mm -hmm. as a junior enlisted person. So they encouraged me to go to college. So I got into a program and got sent to college pretty quickly. I
0: didn't even know you're allowed to tell your superior officer, like, why don't we do it a different way?
1: I don't know if you are. But you did it anyway. I mean, you can. I mean, it's not. People think of the military as you tell someone to do something and then they go exactly do that thing. That was never my experience. No. No, I mean, people kind of might do what you tell them to do. It's like in business, like people might go do what you tell them to do. They'll probably do a version of what you told them to do. Right. But I mean, it's not as clear. People are only going to do what you can force them, compel them to do and measure that they've actually done or what they want to do, whichever is greater. So if you want people to do stuff that can't be clearly and easily measured, then you have to convince them. You just have to Make them want to do it. See, that. this is definitely true when it comes to being
0: an effective leader and effective manager. But I didn't quite realize it was so similar in the military.
1: Yeah, it's pretty similar because in the military.
0: Everyone thinks about it as so hierarchic. Yeah.
1: Though in the military also, I mean, as an officer, I rarely had anybody tell me exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew what we were supposed to be doing. And a lot of times I'd offer, I think we should be doing this, or mm-hmm. I'd go to my boss and say, Hey, I'm planning to do this, this, and this. Yeah. And sometimes they'd say okay. Sometimes they'd say, I don't think you should do that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they would give me an answer that was not clearly no. So I would just go do it. Mm-hmm. But there were other people that were waiting for instructions. No doubt. Yeah. A lot of people like to be told what to do. But if you like to do what you think is right, yeah. you can definitely do that in military. Yeah.
0: So go back to boot camp.
1: You have that picture in your head when you showed up. Oh, uh, yeah. What it looked like. Like, uh, it was miserable. I went to San Diego. I mean, <laughs> San Diego's not miserable. <laughs> it was for us. I mean, oh. you just, you treated like an animal by the time, or that's not fair. It's not a nice way to say it, but it's just difficult. It's challenging when you get there. You show up there and it takes you a long time to get there. And then you're tired and you stay up the whole first night and you're wearing the same clothes for like two days. So you're all dirty. I do like very bright in my mind is when you go in to get your haircut i mean it's like they show you in the movies. like yeah. you line up you're staying there at attention in a line yeah. and they put you you go in that chair and you go over there and you sit down and this guy goes or a woman goes and cuts off what your hair you and this just big clump of hair falls in your lap yeah. and you realize that you made a terrible decision <laughs> <laughs> like you just should not have done this oh, this God. was a mistake yeah these guys are serious here yeah yeah I think the process has benefits. I mean, it teaches people to work together, that there's a structure and a system for doing things. I think there's value in that. But when you're going through it, it's pretty unpleasant. I mean, they make you do exercises constantly. They make it pretty challenging. You don't know when you're there. There's very strict rules about what they can do to you. It's not really the way it feels when you're doing it, Mm -hmm. but when you're doing it, it feels. You feel it. Yeah, you feel it. You feel it's pretty crazy. So, the people that
0: started with you in boot camp, uh-huh. did they stick with it?
1: Mostly? yeah, I mean, most people make it through boot camp, high proportion. Some people get hurt and get sent into another unit where they can heal. Mm-hmm. Some people don't make it, but mm-hmm. most people that go to boot camp make it through boot camp.
0: yeah. Are you still in touch with any of those people? No. Because we like
1: spread out. Yeah,
0: you don't stay together as a unit, it's just no, no. that's.
1: I mean, I went from there to another school to learn a job, the job I was supposed to do. And then I got sent from there to a unit, but mm-hmm. it all happened pretty fast. Yeah, what was the that job? That was a long time ago. I did a bad job picking. I was supposed to be, I was an aviation ordinanceman So I was supposed to put bombs on airplanes. And I mm-hmm. quickly realized I was not suited to it. Why not? It's really a lot of maintenance stuff. Like the bombs mm-hmm. part I liked, that seemed attractive. <laughs> But there's a lot of maintenance stuff. yeah. And I like more physically direct things than Mm -hmm. I'm a terrible maintainer. Like, I don't like doing the same thing over and over again on a regular basis. And that was what that job was That job was like that. And I just wasn't, yeah. So what happens next after that? So I think I was irritating them. So they encouraged me to go to college. Mm -hmm. I got sent off to college. And just regular student in college? Like full uh, time? No, I was in a program. Program sent me to college. So yeah. I went got sent to an ROTC unit and I was in the NROTC unit mm-hmm. for my time in college. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a regular student, but you do yeah. stuff. And you have other responsibilities. Regularly. Yeah, we worked out three mornings a week and we had yeah. classes and we had a thing like one afternoon a week was given to that.
0: Were you in ROTC in the era when those students were not looked upon very well from
1: colleges no because really i started college in 1989 oh, and uh, this goes back to the vietnam war and after that, that yeah thing. so i was after because we had desert storm like well, i was in college and people became a lot more pro-military in desert storm yeah it was kind of neutral when i got there and then we had desert storm and people got very pro-military there's a lot of yellow ribbons around and hmm. people thanking troops that kind of thing
0: yeah yeah what do you think about that the strangers coming up to you which they no doubt did over the years yeah i I think
1: it's nice i appreciate that people appreciate the serving military people i mean there's a lot of people out there right now in far off lands away from their family doing challenging things it's a sacrifice and i think recognizing that they're doing that for everybody i appreciate that right so it feels weird though when people come up and thank you for your service
0: yeah but it's become a thing and people understand it i think it's respectful it's just really different than how rank-and-file military were viewed when I was growing up. Oh, yeah. Really different. Definitely a turn for the better to respect everyone who what they're doing, let alone people that are risking their lives to help us, to help people. So you did the ROTC and you had school and then you were deployed somewhere.
1: Yeah, I went from there. When I got commissioned, I became an infantry officer. So infantry is what you think of Marines doing. Like you carry heavy stuff a long ways, you shoot guns, and you either attack things or defend things. So were you in, was the Iraq war still going on when you were? Uh, no, not by the time I finished school. I was lucky. I finished our train on my officer training and we we're on our honeymoon in Ireland. And my wife called home to check in with her mom. And her mom's like, oh, yeah, some guy from the Marine Corps has been trying to call Jack for like a week. <laughs> so I called my unit and I was like, hey, this is Lieutenant O'Toole. I'm supposed to check in two weeks. And he said, I don't think so. We're getting on a ship next Friday. Oh, boy. So I flew back from Ireland. I like put my stuff in a car, rental car, drove down to Camp Lejeune, checked in, and mm-hmm. immediately got on a ship. And we went down and uh, mm-hmm. changed the government in Haiti in 94. That was the That's, deployment you were on. So that was my first deployment. So that was Sedras was in power and Aristide had won the election. Mm-hmm. And Sedras wouldn't give it up to him. So we went down there to make Sedras give it up and let Aristide come in. Mm-hmm. So that was great. We went down, we did some good stuff. We did some humanitarian stuff with the Haitian people down there. Things were pretty bad in Haiti then. Yeah. Strangely, they were worse in 94 when I went there than they were when I was doing relief operations there in 2010 after the earthquakes. It was worse. It was worse 94, than 94. Without the earthquake. Without the earthquake, yeah. It seems weird. Yeah. So we were down there helping the Haitians, changing the government. Yeah, it was the first time I ever rushed through a door with a gun and didn't know it was on the other side. And there was a guy there with a gun. It was great. You get turned up to 11. <laughs> it's super exciting. It's super exciting. The guys got the gun. Yeah. It's super exciting. We didn't shoot any of them. I didn't shoot anyone. Like, And none of those guys shot any of my guys. Mm-hmm. Some of my buddies were in a gunfight 100 yards away from me, but I wasn't in it.
0: Yeah. Well, what happened in this situation when you went through the
1: Door and there's a guy with a gun on the other side. We just took, captured them and took the guns away from them. Like they didn't shoot. And so we didn't shoot them. Now I got to ask you about this. It doesn't take
0: long for a bullet to go from somebody's gun to you or somebody else.
1: Yeah. I have to say, you know, young Marines, even young Marines are exceptionally good at determining whether they should be shooting someone or not. Because you see guy people, there's plenty of people that meet the criteria for getting shot, but Sometimes, you know, they're just being dumb. You just see the look on their face. People do take risk mm-hmm. to not shoot another person when they don't have to, because maybe they have some amazing ability to trick you. Mm-hmm. But just when you don't feel like it's right, you don't want to do something to somebody that you don't have to. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. people, Marines are really good at it. They're like, well, technically he did this, but mm-hmm. I could tell he was just being dumb. Or he just wasn't paying attention. To what How he was doing. do you tell a thing like that? I don't know. Okay. People's facial expression, their body language, do you train, have some sense uh, on of that? Or is it experience or, or training? Oh, or? we do do training on that. Specifically
0: about looking yeah. at somebody's face and.
1: We don't call it that, but we yeah. do shoot or no shoot training when yeah. we're doing training for rules of engagement. So we have people playing roles and you say whether or not you should engage this person. Yep. So we do do that. Later, my next appointment, we're defending an embassy in Africa. Mm hmm. This is on my top 10, like best things I've ever done list, by the way, because we stopped the civil war there in Liberia and it's been relatively peaceful since then. There's been a couple of peaceful transitions of government. So that's on my big one list. That's a good one. But there I would every day have that kind of training going on. So mm-hmm. I would have lanes every day out there and I'd have find different people to be role players and put them through different situations Yeah, because I wanted them to be as clear as possible about what was really hostile intent and what wasn't. Yeah. It just seems like it's a big judgment call. But what you're saying is that
0: experience and practice really reduces the error rate on that.
1: I mean, it is a big judgment call. But so I don't want anybody to get hurt that shouldn't. But I also understand that if a Marine shoots somebody in a situation that they shouldn't, like they have to carry that around with them. Mm -hmm. And that's bad for them too. Yeah, Yeah. It's like everybody gets hurt in that situation. Mm -hmm. So I mean, the more you intensely you train the less likely are you are to have that kind of problem
0: right so jack why did you stay in the military so i think 25 years right
1: almost 25 yeah
0: is it the case that many people retire after 20 years yeah with full pension and all the rest yeah
1: yeah so you stayed even longer yeah i stayed somewhat longer yeah what was
0: your Um, position at the end when you stepped down when you retired from the military
1: my last job i was head the future plans officer for all the marines on the east coast so before that, I'd been, when you hear there's 2,500 Marines off the coast of somewhere, Yeah, I'd been the COO equivalent of that 2,500 Marines. So I ran one of those 2,500 Marine units for a while. Mm-hmm. I internally ran it while somebody directed me. Yes. I got to run a couple pretty big things before I got out. I honestly stayed in because I didn't intend to stay in. Mm -hmm. I intended to go do something else. Mm -hmm. But I kept getting offered jobs that seemed interesting and exciting. Within the military. Within the military, where I could go do something that I thought would make a difference. Yeah. And so I would take them. One day I got to the point where I was ready to go do something else, so I got out. Yeah. So do you think that they were effective in how they manage you? No. No. The military treats people as a fungible asset. So I was a infantry, lieutenant colonel, force reconnaissance officer, but they treated me. They just would say, we need to fill this slot with an X. We have 42 X's over here. Any one of them would be fine to throw in this slot. That's how the military manages Hmm. people. And it works terribly. But all the different jobs I did until I said I was going to get out, I didn't get my job through the normal system. Somebody asked me to come work for them. Mm-hmm. And I said I would come work for them and then they would get the system to have me move to go work for them.
0: Yeah. So there's some people that identify talent. Right. And manage that. Yes. But if that doesn't happen, they're not thinking about the individual. They're thinking about the job slot.
1: The system's a hundred percent arbitrary. Other, if somebody's not managing that talent for themselves personally. And so to manage the
0: talent, it, that's up to an individual officer. Yeah, thinks that's, who understand, after you think it's not important, maybe some do, I don't know, but who really takes it upon themselves to manage that.
1: Yeah, a lot of people in the military really internalize that you should go wherever they send you and do the best job you can and bloom where you're planted. Yeah. Like we put on our report, our annual fitness report, which is our evaluation, you Mm -hmm. put where you want to go for your next three jobs. Mm -hmm. Most people put y -0 0 which means needs of the Marine corps that they're happy to go anywhere. whatever, whatever you give me, I'm ready for that.
0: And they'll go work hard. Isn't down that interesting to have that type of dedication to the overall
1: organization, the yeah, cause. It's totally incomprehensible to me because I didn't feel that way at all. I wanted to go do specific things, but a lot of people, high percentage of people are happy enough to do whatever the Marine Corps wants them to do and work hard at it and try and do a good job. Yeah, you think about people that are
0: ex-military that go into the government for
1: mm-hmm. many of them are very big jobs.
0: And they always talk about service. They always talk about loyalty. They always talk about what they were asked. And maybe it's not what I would have chosen, but I was asked to do it. And if I'm asked to do it, of course, I'm going to do it. Because my life is dedicated to public service. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, very impressive. Yeah. Do you think that's a mindset that translates to business
1: in a positive or negative way? Or I don't know. I mean, I don't see it happening in business. I just don't think it's generally like that. I don't know. Because some people... I think it depends what kind of job you do, because I think a lot of people want to, I don't mean this at all in a pejorative way, but basically be farmers. They want to go in and they want to know what they're going to have to do every day Mm -hmm. and they want to do what they have to do and to make a comfortable living Mm -hmm. doing what they were told to do. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are comfortable that way. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Like, so that kind of person, I think absolutely can be, it's great. If you treat them well, I think they'll be loyal to your organization and they'll want to keep doing whatever that list of things you give them Mm -hmm. is every day.
0: Yeah. So they want that certainty.
1: Right. They're not
0: entrepreneurial in how they think. Right. They're not going to create something for themselves and they don't feel like they're missing out on anything either. They're very happy to be doing it this way.
1: Yeah. And maybe their life is more outside their job. We talk about this at Tuck. If you go to Tuck Business School, you're going to go into a job where you work intensely. Yep. And that's going to be a lot of your life. And hopefully in the long term, you are make an amount you're satisfied with from that. But that's what you do, right? You intensely Mm -hmm. work this job and that's what you think about all the time. I don't know that that's inherently better than a job where you work nine to five and you don't work intensely at it. It's fairly straightforward. And then you watch some kind of sports, you play on your church softball team, you coach your children's teams of whatever variety, right? It's Mm -hmm. just different.
0: You're bringing up something I've thought about a lot because I've taken the path of going for it. And you give up a lot. Yeah, you give up a lot. And I think about there's some could be my own family, like cousins or whatever, or other people, you know, they might not be doing this kind of exotic lifestyle, traveling around and doing all these cool things. But they don't seem unhappy. No. And they're home and they're there and they have their community. And yeah, so sometimes I wonder that I picked the right path. I can't imagine even now having done anything different, it's just the way I'm wired, but I do realize there is another way and there's, yeah. there's some advantages to it.
1: I mean, it's the way I'm wired too, but I don't think there's either one's inherently better. It's just what you're suited to.
0: Yeah. But the problem is you only get one chance. Yeah. That's the problem.
1: I was lucky. I kind of got two lives out of this Yeah. because I did the military thing for a long time and I got out just in time to be able to go to Tuck and be a business guy.
0: In other words, young enough. Young enough. enough just young too. enough. Yeah. Yeah. But as you're describing your time in the military, you didn't fit into that model of just tell me what to do and I'll go ahead and
1: do it. No. So, I mean, I spent most of my time in special operations or specialized units. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I was in units where it was very intense and it was great. I mean, I worked with a lot of really smart people, really enthusiastic people, Mm -hmm. and we'd go out and do interesting stuff. I was lucky in the military, very lucky to work with such great people all the time. What was the scariest thing that ever happened to you in the military? You're smiling with the scary. So, okay. <laughs> the scariest things for me, though, were more like people told me I was going to go do an office job. I mean, one of the scariest things that ever happened to me is they told me that I was going to go to headquarters, Marine Corps and work up in the Pentagon. And that seemed terrible to me. Yes. I mean, physically scary. I don't know. I mean, things happen around you. Being really scared to me is like the, something will happen to your kids. Yeah. Right. If something happens to you, it just happens. It's mm-hmm. unfortunate. But it just happens. But I mean, your kids, that's what's scary. Yeah. It's like having one of them close to traffic is much scarier to me than anything that's happened to me by myself.
0: Yeah. It's interesting to think about because your parents saw you head off to the military at the age of 18. Yeah. And so from their point of view, yeah, you were doing something.
1: Yeah. My mom didn't watch the news one time for 25 years. She refused to. She refused to watch the news. Yeah. She didn't want to see any place I was. Wow.
0: Jack, you've been in the military for 25 years, and that means you were in the military on September 11, 2001. What was that day like for you?
1: I was. I was in Okinawa, and it was the middle of a typhoon. And somebody called us up and told us to turn on the television, like called my wife. Mm. And so we turned on the TV, and the first plane had just hit the tower. So we were watching that on TV in the middle of this typhoon, so it was whipping around outside. And... uh by the time the towers fell, or shortly after the towers fell, the people in Okinawa, the senior people, knew this was terrorism. And so people started getting crazy. So I was commander in a reconnaissance unit. So like we would jump, dive, use small boats, that do raids, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So they wanted me to launch rubber boats in a typhoon to provide security in case anybody tried to assault mm-hmm. the island. In case you were going to be under attack. Yeah. In case okay. we were going to be under attack. Because so, people thought this was a credible threat. Yes. And I mean, I was adamant that I would not launch rubber boats in a typhoon, that that didn't make any sense. <laughs> Might not be the best we used to deploy talent here. Yeah. And if we just sat on top of our buildings, we could see the ocean a lot better than in a rubber boat because mm-hmm. the rule of lights, you just yeah. can't see that far. If you're at water. People said that they were just going to do something. I mean, everything went crazy. Yeah, People mm-hmm. thought something was going to happen, that this was part of a larger effort even larger even larger stable. yeah like it a was a so worldwide large. assault effort yeah so it was crazy i mean it took hours to get on and off base for months at, or a couple months after that they intensely searched every vehicle mm-hmm. if you got left your vehicle out in town it had to be thoroughly searched when you came back mm-hmm. if it ever left your site right in case someone had put a bomb in there yeah or something like that. how much did it change your life at that point everything just ratcheted up two or three yeah. notches I was in Okinawa a little longer, but I went back and uh, led a unit back in the States after that. I ended up leading a task force in Iraq that was supposed to catch the top 12 targets in Al-Anbar province, Iraq. And that was really exciting. We were out there doing raids constantly, trying to track down these terrorist leaders every day. How do you find someone like this? It's called effects-based targeting. So if I was looking for you and I didn't know where to find you, yeah. I would find everybody that I knew you knew. Mm-hmm. And if I could find any of them, that would be great. If I can't find any of them, I would find everyone that we know they know. Your friend's barber. Yeah. I might like go get that. It sounds like police work. Like, Yeah, you go to you get your friend's barber and then see if your friend's barber knows where your friend is or mm-hmm. where we'd be able to find him and work our way up that chain. And I mean, it's not really your barber. I mean, it's other people who are active in terrorism, but second and third, fourth relationships to work your way back to the people you wanted. Now, these people would be in hiding or on the run or... Some of them, though. Some of them were living openly, even though they are committing acts against the United States and Iraq. They weren't afraid of getting caught. Or they just... Some of them, I guess they weren't afraid. I don't know why they weren't afraid. Yeah. They should have been. Yeah. Because you caught some of them. Yeah. Because we caught some of them. Yeah. So... We got five out of 12... Right, took them off the list. And then one of the people on the list killed another person on the list. So our list, six of the people out of 12 came off the list over there. Are those the remaining six, were they ever caught? Probably. I mean, not while I was there, but
0: probably eventually. So when you got five out of the 12, what does that mean to get them? We
1: captured them. Almost all of them we captured. Do they end up in Guantanamo? No, I don't think so. They weren't that high level. No, they weren't that high level i don't think they were really taking people from iraq to guantanamo at that point yeah they would question them there in iraq Mm -hmm. debrief them in iraq to get more information to break the whole system down more right and we were lucky we also my unit did the pre-assault reconnaissance so looking at the city of fallujah before the assault and shaping meaning putting fires on places that we needed to for the assault when we took the city of fallujah back and then in the eastern side of fallujah we led regular units in How long were you there then as part of that? That deployment? That deployment, I was in the country for seven months. For seven months? Yeah.
0: And sometimes you see either in TV or movies or even news that Marines or other military personnel can call home somehow.
1: Yeah, that's true. Skype call. Yeah. FaceTime. I don't know what. Well, I mean, I walked around with a satellite telephone in my pocket all the time. Yeah. Because we use satellite phones to connect. So you could just use that? I could. I didn't. You didn't because... They said we could use the phones for limited personal use. But I felt like sooner or later, somebody was going to be mad that our satellite phone bills were giant. (laughs) So I just like refrained from using it very often. I would use it once a month to call home because I just, I knew somebody was going to be mad sooner or later. And I just felt like I should, it'd be easier for me to defend my guys if I wasn't also in the crosshairs of people being mad. Yes. During the second night in the city, this reporter offered to let me use his phone to call home. And there was things exploding all over the place and machine guns firing. Mm-hmm. I thought it was the dumbest thing in the world. And that not be the best now. sound effects for your no. wife to hear. No, well, I'm, I'm fine, dear. Yeah. I thought my wife very much would not like that. Yes. But now yeah. you see that in movies all the time. People calling home when things are like machine guns are firing and things are exploding. It's not realistic, though. I don't think so. I wouldn't call home like that. I don't know no. many guys that would. No. Wives don't have like very positive reactions to that. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. And you had kids at that time? I did. We have three. My youngest was born right after September 11th. My youngest was born. My wife was pregnant at that point right. in yeah. September on September 11th.
0: You were talking about entrepreneurial activities within even the military.
1: Yeah. What's a good example of that? Okay. So I was very, very fortunate. They decided to start up a Marine component of Special Operations Command because Special Operations Command had SEALs and Rangers and Green Berets and Air Force. All together in the same. They all fall under Special Operations Command, Mm -hmm. but they didn't have any Marines. And the DOD decided they needed more special operations people and nobody else could really make more. So the Marines got directed to stand up our own component now called Marine Raiders. So I was one of the first people brought in to work on that. So in the beginning, there was only a handful of us really working on it. There's some few support people, but there's really only a handful of us working on it. And it was great. Every day you went in there and it was like a barrage of punches because everybody was adam- in the Marine Corps was adamantly against this. And the other services didn't want us like getting in their rice bowl. Right. The other components.
0: Nobody wanted you to do this. Nobody wanted us. Why did it not exist in the Marines already? What's the uh, culture that says this is not what you do?
1: When they started up SOCOM, they asked the Marine Corps mm-hmm. to have a component. They wanted the people that did what I, force reconnaissance Marines like I was, to be part of SOCOM. And the Marine Corps said no. Because the Marine Corps doesn't like people to be special because all Marines are special. Yes. So, like, you can't be, like, extra special, I guess. <laughs> so, it was, and it was rough. This seems like I'm saying this to be funny, but I multiple times stood in front of rooms full of people and had them scream profanity at me because they were so angry about what we are doing. Mm. And some of them like were like, what makes you so special? Yeah. And I was like, that's just what they call it. Yeah, (laughs) it's just the term of art for this that's right like i'm not special at all it's just what they call it we could move wow they're so adamant against that yeah they're really against it but it was great we built everything from the ground up Mm -hmm. so i mean we had to figure everything out what our mission was going to be what our structure was going to be we restructured the whole thing pretty quickly after the beginning and really tried to figure out how we had to train people and that was just amazing And there was tons of resistance. It's kind of like a startup, though. In a startup, you're trying to move people from apathy to at least mild interest. Where in this, we were trying to move people from active resistance Mm. to at least passive acceptance. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a similar amount of movement. Sounded like a tougher gig, really. (laughs) Yeah. Moving against the anger was pretty hard. But it it was really great. And a lot of the people at the beginning did not like it at all, the regular Marines, Mm -hmm. because they just didn't like that nobody told us what to do. Nobody had any idea what we should be doing. And we were having to figure it out. I personally loved that. Yeah, We worked intensely all the time, but we were moving pieces forward all the time. I remember there's four big fat binders, like four four-inch binders of stuff after a while that you're supposed to read when you showed up to understand what was going on. I had wow. written about one of those binders. And when you say you have to read it when you showed up, what does that mean? Like when you came and joined the unit, yeah. if you were in an important position in the unit, you were supposed to read these four binders of stuff. So you could really understand where our positions were on different stuff and where like what we were working towards. And yeah, that sounds real different than what
0: an entrepreneurial company would do. There's no binders. It's move fast, break things. All the usual stuff yeah, people
1: yeah. say. Part of our thing about the binders though, we also, you had to get qualified to give our command brief. And you had to get signed off by a small group of people because we tried to control the message. Because mm-hmm. people saying things that were off message just caused us more problems yeah. and it made more people angry. So we were very, very careful about our message mm-hmm. externally. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to build this organization internally. We're trying to train people. Where are we trying to recruit people, then do assessment selection? Like we had this whole big assessment selection program and then train people and deploy people. And at the same time, we're trying to externally message to get people to at least not resist this. Right, so you really have to pay attention. That's a startup, that really is, right? Oh yeah. And how big was your group? In the beginning, there was really five of us working on it. By the time I left it, there was 2,500, now there's 3,500. It's taken off? Oh yeah, it's big. And there's raiders deployed all over the world right now. doing What's missions? the
0: attitude within the rank and file of Marines? Or actually, any, even it would have been senior people that would have been probably most upset about this whole idea.
1: Yeah. There's still they a, come to a lot of it? regular Marines that don't like it. Yeah, But I think people have kind of gotten, people just accept it now that this is the way it is. Yeah. I mean, there's still people saying that it should go away, but. So special forces have become such a big part of military warfare. Absolutely. More so than ever before, really. Yeah. Why is that? there's two kinds of things special operations units can do. One is unconventional, where you're working with indigenous forces and you're doing things very different than the normal military does. And a certain amount of that takes place. But the other thing that is much more, that's probably 10% of what special operations does. Like 90% of what special operations does is hyper-conventional, meaning you're doing what regular units do, but you're just doing it with much more trained people. Mm -hmm. So you take really capable people and you give them a lot of training and a lot of resources and equip them very well. And people like special operations, one, because there's not 18-year-olds there. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem they're adults. Yeah, Full-grown adults are going out there. And so it's less, I think it's seen as less risk. But two, because it limits the amount of bad things that happen. Because, I mean, they're just older, they're more trained, they have Mm -hmm. better judgment, they have better capabilities in everything. They'll generally go out and do what you want them to do without straying from that. They'll communicate the whole time and then they'll come back. So it's just simpler, easier. Mm -hmm.
0: I'm thinking about what the equivalent is of special forces in modern business. MBAs. (laughs) <laughs> I'm
1: sure that all the MBAs listening like that idea, but MBAs are independent agents. But they've been yes. specifically yes. selected and then highly trained. And so, even if a job you don't necessarily need an MBA for, you use them. You feel more comfortable with them because you're like somebody else has already put them through the ringer. Yeah. So I trust that they're not going to do anything that far offline. They're not going to be mm-hmm. Nick Leeson, right? The rogue, bring down bearings, and yeah. the rogue
0: trader. Yeah, I was just talking about that story. Those people listening now who never heard of this guy. You got to go back and read your business history. It's only about 20 years ago tonight, yeah. maybe, right? Barings Bank. The reason it came up the other day, maybe even yesterday before, is because there were many people in his office that knew exactly what was going on and nobody said anything. Really? Yeah. I interviewed one of them in particular. And this woman was helping him execute on trades. It's not like he was doing all the grunt work himself. Right. He wasn't. They knew it but they were afraid to challenge him or they didn't understand what he was doing. And I think that's actually a very common pattern. I don't know if, whether you ever saw that in all the different experiences you had, but it's why there's, you know, whistleblowing is such a big thing. Right. People usually know when someone is doing a bad thing, they don't usually speak up.
1: I think that's true because people accept within a culture, if something's done, yep. widely done and seems to be widely accepted, people just accept that it's okay. Yeah. Right. Right. But it's also true now when
0: it, well, it could be widely. I'm thinking about, think about the Me Too movement and, uh, mm-hmm. how many stories have come out now and thing that, that, there are a lot of famous people that have been doing certain things for a long time. Not that long ago, what was his name? Placido Domingo, the mm-hmm. opera tenor. For years, people apparently knew that he was a difficult person and a philanderer and he would take advantage of women whenever he could. And. He got caught, not got caught. It yeah. finally got recognized as something. It just took a long, but the point is a lot of people knew about it. And it wasn't that that was the culture of that entire industry or whatever organization he was in. I think it's a human nature thing.
1: I think people just accept though that like there's people that do weird stuff and people just accept that that's the way that person is. Yeah. And what it if, seems to like validate them in some but way. It's, it's so weird stuff that's wrong. Right. Yeah. I mean, I knew somebody who was leading an organization. He had a closed door policy. You couldn't (laughs) speak to him unless he made an appointment. I like that closed door policy. Which seemed crazy to me, but everybody's like, oh, that's just how he is. Yeah. I mean, I've known other people that are super volatile. I mean, would just not have appropriate emotional control Mm. and would be abusive towards people. And a lot of people just felt like, well, I mean, that's how he is. That's how he is. Do you think people
0: are becoming less forgiving of these I hope so types of personality? I Park hope so.
1: I mean, yeah. I have no tolerance for that. I don't understand why people, other people yeah. do tolerate it. I mean, yeah. some things are just wrong. Right. Some things are just wrong. I mean, if it's just wrong, then you don't tolerate it. Yeah. Jack, it was time to leave the military after 25
0: years. Why did you finally decide to do
1: that? I just was interested in doing something else. I think a lot of people reach the point, like mid-career, later in your career, yeah. where you just know how to do it. So your learning curve is pretty flat. Right. Right. And it's just not exciting anymore when you know how to do it. I mean, people come in with a problem and you're like, that's the number 21. <laughs> just do this, do that, and wait yeah. two days.
0: Okay, this is so interesting what you just said, because number one, it's my primary advice to young people who ask me about jobs and careers and et cetera, which as a professor, Tuck students, of MBA students, and you stay in touch with them, there's a right. lot of those conversations. And I talk about the slope of the learning curve. And when that starts to flatten, and when you can anticipate that it's going to start to flatten, which is even better, you should be looking for the next gig. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's you for sure. But yeah. then you also said earlier, there are these people that
1: do their nine to five and they don't want that slope at all. Right. right. It's a question of, you know, yeah, it's what you're like. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, if you're a learner and just for me, my learning curve had gotten flat Yeah. or it was flattening out, at least it wasn't really flat, but it was flattening out. So I wanted to do something different. I was at the point where if I didn't leave, then I was going to be too old to really have a whole nother career. Yeah. When I decided to do this, I guess I was 41 I was just after my 43rd birthday when I was officially retired. though so I'd already completed a term at Tuck or two terms at Tuck mm-hmm. by that point. So I started trying to figure out what I was going to be when I grow up. <laughs> and I did figure out something interesting in that process. I talked to two people that did the same job pretty close together. Yeah. And the first person didn't like the job. And it was hard for me to differentiate whether what about the job that didn't sound good was because he didn't like it. And what about the job that didn't sound good because I wouldn't like it. And then I talked to another person that did the same roughly same thing. Mm-hmm. And he loved it and he was just gushing about it. And it sounded terrible to me. So I realized that when you're trying to figure it out if you get people that really like it and if they tell you how much they love it and yep. why they love it yep. and you don't like that then that's good to cross off your list and move on to the next thing. Yeah. And it's good for them. Yeah. Oh you yeah. Found it. I mean, they're happy, but I knew like I didn't want to do what he did. So then I started finding people that really like what they do and hearing about it and crossing things off. Yep. And a friend convinced me I should go to business school. Part of the reason I went to business school was in my old job, we would spend a lot of effort learning about cultures and learning how to work in a specific culture. Mm -hmm. And I realized I didn't know anything about the U.S. business culture. And I felt like a two-year like full immersion at business school would be how I would learn most. About the U.S. business culture and be able to operate fluidly the way I did in my old culture. Yeah. So I started looking at schools. I had this whole matrix of what schools of top 10 schools, the 20 schools that fall in the top 10. Yes. And I was going around visiting people. But then I came to Tuck and I just loved it here. And I knew I desperately wanted to go here. You were 42 when you started? I was 42 when I started. 42 when you started, which would be,
0: for those people who don't know, uh, one of the oldest, if not the oldest. Were you the oldest student that year?
1: Oh, yeah. I was definitely the oldest student that year. I just thought I was the oldest person in my class. And then somebody came up to me after I'd been here for a couple of months and said, hey, don't you think you're the oldest person that ever went here? I was two it's years not. older than you when I started, yeah. so I apparently he was the second oldest person to ever. I go hate to, to tell
0: you now because I have somebody else I could tell you about. Oh, really? It's really an really? amazing story. Actually, he lived in Cape Elizabeth, where you're from, forever. Although he's now passed away, but he went to Dartmouth, and oh, he came back for a second. Year he in his sixties, yes. The oh, you hear about that? Yeah, uh, C. Lorano told me about this. Okay, yeah, he was 68 when he came back to Tuck. So in the old days, you can do three years at Dartmouth undergraduate, and then you do your fourth and fifth year and the MBA program and you graduate after five years of two degrees, he did his first year at business school, which is his fourth year at Dartmouth. And then he went to medical school and he always wished he had come back and to finish. And the age of 68, he did. That's amazing. And it's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's a lifelong learner. That's for sure. That's for sure. But you didn't kind of just go to class when you were in business school. You got involved pretty quickly, right? In business, in an entrepreneurial bench. How did that happen?
1: Absolutely. I got here and I said on my application that I was going to be a consultant or I was going to go into private wealth. But then when I started going to the lunches, when they tell you about those things, I felt like I didn't really want to do that. And I wanted to go into a startup because I really liked my experience building MARSOC. So I want to go into a startup.
0: So I spent- Marsonk again, that- the That's the component
1: of Special Operations yeah. Command, yeah. yeah. So I built that organization and I really wanted to have another experience like mm-hmm. that because mm-hmm. it was exciting. So I spent a term trying to come up with an idea for a scalable startup or not quite a term, half a term, trying to come up with an idea for a scalable startup. And it turns out that I'm not good at that. <laughs> <laughs> then I started looking for technologies to commercialize and I came up with this rubric and I kept refining my rubric and going around Dartmouth and meeting people with different technologies. Mm-hmm. And then I was in the entrepreneurship class, the first year entrepreneurship class. And my now partner, Joe Bell Bruno, there's this day when people would go up and pitch their ideas, looking for teams, one of our first classes. And Joe got up there and he held up this little device and he said a lot of science words that I did not know. And then he said that he could detect nicotine. And then he said a lot more science words. Right. Like you heard that. So I heard the detect nicotine and uh, I used to travel 200 days a year, there's a chain of hotels I refuse to stay in because I twice got rooms that were smoked up in a row. Uh So I thought, hmm, chasing away someone that spends 30 grand a year on hotel rooms is probably bad for business. Mm -hmm. So if we could prevent that by detecting people smoking in hotel rooms, then it seems like people would want that. So that was So class, Joe, so, and
0: Joe was at that time a
1: chemistry professor? Yeah, he spent 35 years as a chemistry professor here at Dartmouth. And so he invented this thing. He invented it. He's a one of the top people in the world on molecularly imprinted polymers. It's a very narrow area of materials chemistry. Mm-hmm. But you can use it to make sensors. sensors. And that's what he did. Yep. And he was he already selling any of these? Oh no. He just had an idea. He'd he had a prototype. It, he had a prototype. And he'd made it in his lab and he had it on a little device similar to an Arduino that you could carry around and operate it. Yeah. So I started as my winter, January of my first year, I started working on it, going around, talking to hotels, eventually talking to property management companies. I was surprised, I quickly found out that they want to be able to detect marijuana as well, because apparently people smoke marijuana in hotels nearly as often as cigarettes, which I would have had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's not my life experience. So I got talked to Joe and he actually developed a marijuana sensor as well. And we started working on the company. And I worked on it from January of my first year on. So that's like eighteen months of school time more or less. Yep. Yeah. I won a competition in the spring and want some money for the summer. And instead of paying myself for the summer, I hired an intern, an electrical engineer to start working on it from there. From the engineering school? From the engineering school. Yeah. He So he started working on the device. I started working on raising money. I was able to raise money between my first year and second year. How much? 330, 30,000 <laughs> bucks between my first year and second year. I worked on it all through the second year. And then I got labs and offices and started building a team and working on it. So basically you built this company
0: by partnering with this Famous professor that invented something that was a cool idea, but he wouldn't be able to commercialize it, did not commercialize it. No, he didn't know how to
1: commercialize it. Which was not a shot at him. It's the way it is for 99.99% of scientists. And I think for any kind of startup, any technology startup particularly, there's, I say the number 100, the number's meaningless, but there's a large number of orthogonally aligned skills that you need to have to build a company, particularly it's a technology company. Mm -hmm. If a bright person might have several of those skills, but you need to have people with different sections of those skills, Mm -hmm. and then you need to start learning the skills you don't have. So how big is the company today? So we have 25 people at our office here in Lebanon, plus we have four overseas development teams that do different tasks for us, and then we have a few more part-time people. And along the way, you've raised other rounds? Yeah. Yeah, we raise more money. And is there a revenue number you can share? Not yet. We're not positive yet. We're still on burn. But we're close. Close. Think. Wow. Who is the customer that buys this? So it's doing very well in hotels. It's doing well in property management. Casino hotels are our dead center, perfect yes, client.
0: Because they, everyone's smoking all over the place. Because so they don't
1: people smoke that. where they're not supposed to in casino hotels. Yeah. So we have casino hotels that are seeing a 10x monthly ROI from having our devices in because they charge people a cleaning fee of some type. Yeah, absolutely. And the problem is in a, normally in a hotel or casino hotel, if you catch someone smoking, you charge them a fee and then they'll contest with a credit card company and your chance of being paid is reasonably low. We have a hundred percent success rate against chargebacks for cleaning fees. We have a hundred percent success rate on evictions in property management companies. Now a hundred percent success rate means that you can prove then in fact, this person did the bad thing, which yep. is smoking. Yeah, we provide scientific proof and we've never failed with a credit card company or an eviction.
0: That's quite a good sales pitch right there.
1: So, I mean, that's pretty good. And we yeah. have tens of thousands of devices in hundreds of locations right yeah. now, growing all the time. So your practice,
0: entrepreneurship, startup, creating things and leading, building and leading. Mm-hmm. So what's similar, what's different from military to running this company in terms of leadership?
1: It's funny that... Things I did in the military, I led a lot of people who knew a lot more than I did about their functional areas. Yeah. But I had to know enough about their functional areas to know when to press more, when to accept things, mm-hmm. and kind of encourage them all to keep going the same direction. Mm-hmm. In a, my company, it's very much like that now. I mean, everybody knows a lot more than I do about their functional area. Yeah. But I'm still having to convince them, or I mean, they're all super enthusiastic. My team could not be better. But I mean, I still have to make decisions, convince them, know when I need to unravel the thread more, know when something's okay. Yeah. In that way, it's very similar. Though in the military, you get more resources by convincing higher organizations to give you more resources. So you have to be very controlled in your message in order to make that happen and be have the right message and appeal to what they're interested in at that time to get more resources. Yeah. In a startup, you have two sources for resources, investors and clients. We make things that people want and we provide them good service. And then we show our investors that we're doing a good job and that we're on a pathway to showing them, giving them really great returns. Mm -hmm. So that part's easier than getting resources. Cause this is in the military, it's a zero sum game. You're competing with other organizations to get those resources. So you have to beat out other organizations to get those resources. In a business, if you're doing something great and you can convince people you're doing something great, then that's attractive. There's almost
0: always more money to deploy, which a lot of people don't understand or realize. Right. There's almost always more money to deploy than there are good ideas or places to deploy it. And so
1: if you've got the story and you start to develop a track record, there will be interest. Right. So, I mean, I think that part's easier than the military. But the day in, day out, what I do all the time is very, very similar. I work with a lot of really bright, really motivated people, and I help enable them to do what they do well. And I help align their work with other people in other areas. Yeah. By the way, you have a detector that works for vaping as well. We do. Very excited. We've invented a vaping sensor. They can detect vaping separately from our cigarette, tobacco and marijuana sensors. Just got a grant from NIH to mm-hmm. finish development on it. But I think we're something like a year or 18 months from that being out. But I mean, that'll really give people a meaningful ability to monitor school bathrooms, locker rooms, that kind of thing.
0: Without getting into the technical details too much, mm-hmm. is the underlying technology the same across cigarettes, marijuana, vaping, or is vaping a step function different because it doesn't have smoke?
1: It's a related technology. It's meaningfully different, but it's a related technology. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about how people in business school learn
0: about leadership?
1: So I think in business school, we learn a lot of great stuff about leadership. But I think the one place for us, in my experience at least, was there wasn't a lot of hands-on day in, day out, what you actually do how you lead people and kind of making you aware of the ups and downs of that whole process. Mm -hmm. I don't think they didn't give us that. How would you do that though? Cause it's not the type of thing you're sitting in a class, listening to a lecture on. No, I mean, I have a class I've given on this, but I think if you scenario based would be good, not case based, but scenario based. Mm -hmm. But I think people need to understand that people understand your motives. Like a lot of people think that they can have their own motives and just convince other people to go along and Mm -hmm. make it seem like they're doing what's best for everyone. That doesn't work. People understand what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. You can't really fool people. You have to, either you're doing what's best for everyone or you're not, but they're going to know. And I mean, there's ways to lead people. Different people require different leadership styles. Right. And I just think all that kind of tactical, fundamental day in, day out stuff, would be good for people to know. I mean, as a young officer, I got fooled by someone because they were cagier than I was and I wasn't experienced enough to know I was getting fooled. I have a feeling you remember that very well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as my leadership story for Tuck was, I was, as a Boy Scout patrol leader, I suffered a mutiny.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's a tough start. (laughs)
1: Because I was being unreasonable and I thought I could force people to do things. And it turns out it's Mm -hmm. not like that. It's not like that, yeah. Yeah. But I think that kind of day in, day out tactical stuff. I've talked to classmates about it who lead things now. And they're like, yeah, I didn't really get how it works. You know what? I
0: think, I think it sounds until you've done it. I think it sounds kind of obvious and trivial. And it's not, it's not nearly as sophisticated as this fancy spreadsheet or this algorithm or anything like that. But that stuff I always see could outsource, get another smart guy to figure it out. You cannot outsource leadership.
1: You got to. Oh, no. I mean, you have to know a lot about your people and they have to understand you care about them. And that's why you make different decisions. Yeah. In fact, one of the things that I talk a lot about
0: in the context of super bosses is how you have to customize how you work with people on your team. Not everybody's the same. You're kind of saying the same thing. And you've got to invest the time so you know, this is how Jack operates. And if I want him to be successful and he wants to be successful, I got to do things a little different for Jack because he's not the same as Jane and Mary oh, and everybody yeah, else.
1: Absolutely. And you structure jobs that are appropriate to people's capabilities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have some people that are just great at one thing, but if you want them to do manage that type of thing, they're a great individual performer, right? So you enable them as an individual performer. But if you try and have them manage everyone in that functional area, I mean, that's just not what they do. Yeah. Right. And they're less successful that way. Right. Couple of last questions. Sure. Imagine you can go back to the 21
0: year old Jack O'Toole. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you're sitting next to Jack and he's 21 year old, probably, you know, deployed somewhere given what your story. And there's one thing you'd want him to know that you know
1: now that you've kind of thought about it, figured out now. What would that message be to him? Yeah, that's hard. Cause if you knew everything wasn't going to change, I'd say keep doing things you really care about. Like I got as a young military guy and probably as a young person in any area, you get a lot of advice about what you need to do and the tickets you need to punch for your career and how you're supposed to climb that ladder. And I didn't do that at all. Mm -hmm. And I would tell him, don't worry about it. Like, just do things you're passionate about. Do things you think will make a real meaningful difference and everything else will be fine. Everything will sort itself out. Mm -hmm. If you just do things you really care about, then it'll all be okay.
0: Last question. I like to ask people about their partners, spouses, Mm -hmm. wives. Where'd you meet What's her name? My
1: wife's name is Eileen. Eileen, where did you meet? Uh, how how did you guys meet? We met in college. She was close friends with my roommate's girlfriend. Actually, I first met her in her boyfriend's room her freshman year. That's not. She a was good dating start. someone else I <laughs> knew, but then they broke up, and I met her again the next year. Yeah, she was close friends with my roommate's girlfriend. Yeah, when we were in college. So you just started to hang out a little bit. Yeah, we or no, no. I asked her out, and then she said she had a class. And I asked her out again, and she said she had a class, and it seemed like not realistic time to have a class. And she says this was stalking, but I went and convinced the people at the registrar's office to let me see her schedule. Oh, boy. So I confirmed she did actually have a class. So <laughs> you're telling the truth. Yeah, so it's true. Well, I mean, if she was just, like, brushing me off, I would have just accepted that, you know, yeah. that was fine. But, uh, yeah, I found out she did actually have a class. And then this was actually, I felt like, a great idea. Our first date, we went to the Museum of Science. Because I didn't really know her that well, mm-hmm. and I thought if we went to dinner and a movie, we wouldn't have that much to talk. I would didn't know how much we'd have to talk about. Yeah, so I thought the Museum of Science, we walk around there, and we could at least talk about the stuff there, and that could kind of build sure. up. Did that work out? Yeah, it worked great.
0: That's an interesting technique. I think a lot of people are
1: taking notes on that. That was nineteen ninety one. So we've been eight? together for twenty eight years. Twenty eight years. We celebrate our twenty fifth this summer. Wow. Congratulations. Five years of marriage. Fantastic.
0: It's been a pleasure chatting and learning and hearing about your career and some of the steps along the way. Guest on the SIDCAST today has been Jack O'Toole. Thanks a lot, Jack. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Sitcast. I am so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to, to this episode, and I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesitcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune in to another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry, production company, and always recorded live and in person with our guest of the week.